And I am so glad to see you all because when the service started, you know, like the first song, none of you guys were here. I don't know where you came from, but thank you. Thank you for coming. I know it's a vacation season, but man, it was, it was spooky, scarce in here. Uh, I was not here last week. Uh, I was off, and so I'm going to do something a little bit unusual. I didn't have a chance to really get any feedback for the most part about the series we just did, a series called The Really, Really Good News, but uh, just curious, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Maybe you'll hurt, hurt them a little bit, but uh, good series? What, what, was it good? Good series? Really good news? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You did not break my heart. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I have a reason for asking that I'll get to in just a minute. I want to share something with you. If you were to go on our website, you'll see we have about us, the section about us, and it says we have our mission, vision, and values. And we have nine values in this church. We've had them for about 25 years now. The church is 27 years old. But here's one of the values. We believe accomplishing God's purposes calls for a scripture-based, what does it say? Risk-taking, flexibility, and perseverance. So saying this in another way is that we are a church that from its inception believes in the necessity of change. <laughs> and Rick Warren said it best. The only people that like change are babies with bad diapers. <laughs> so we change things because we are taking scripture-based risks and then we tweak things. That's flexibility. And then sometimes we, we get that clue that we just need to hang in there for a time. Sometimes we stop things and we let them go. The risk didn't turn out to be uh, worth the effort. We recently launched, you, you guys can, uh, I'm sure you're all aware of this, we launched a, a third service at 4 o'clock. We thought there might be a niche in Frederick County for people that like to sleep in, you know, and come out late. It went okay. We did it for nine months. We met some new people. We reached some people for Christ. Some people are, are in the service today because of that. But frankly, for the amount of effort that it required, it, it just was not a good investment. So we pulled it back. Now, November 17th, and you'll be hearing lots and lots and lots more about this, we are going to take yet another risk. We are going to, once again, add a third service. But what we're going to do is do it in a more effective time slot. We know from endless studies that the most uh, valuable time for churches to gather are somewhere between 9 and 11. Those are the sweet spots time-wise. If you add a service on a Saturday or any other time, you're never going to get quite as many people as on those sweet time frames, 9 to 11. So what we thought of is this. How about, now this won't appeal to you, not at all, because you guys are here at the 11:15 service, so you are not early risers. How many just, just own it? You are not an early riser. Yes, okay. You should have saw the first service, though, when I said this part. So what we're going to do, we're going to do instead of a 9, we have a 9 o'clock service at 11.15 right now. We're going to do 8.30. And the people at the 9 o'clock service were like, yes. yeah." I, at first I said 6 a.m. And they were, they were tempted with that. But, you know, early risers, they don't care. They really don't. So 8.30 and then 10, which is the ultimate sweet spot, and then 11.40. Now, Three services starts November 17th. You're going to be hearing lots and lots about this, but I'm saying all that to say this. The word is kind of leaked out, which we really wanted it to, but some concerns have arisen, and the concerns are that, wow, wait a minute, that's a very tight time frame, and does that mean that, uh, you know, Randy's messages are going to be reduced in time, you know? Uh, and some people have literally said this. They're like, you know, we don't want, we don't want him cutting back 
on the time of his message. You know, we care about the teaching ministry of this church. Well, you don't care about the teaching ministry of this church any more than I do. I mean, I started this church as a teaching church. It will always be a teaching church as long as I'm alive and breathing. So the goal is not to reduce the quality of the teaching, but to reduce the time. Now, I ask you a trick question at the beginning. I said, hey, what did you think of that series we just came out of, the really, really good news? And you were like, yeah, good series, good series. All of those messages were 35 to 37 minutes, as opposed to what I normally do, 50 minutes, sometimes even an hour. How many of you, yeah, do an hour. We want an hour message. <laughs> so anyway, yes, the message times, we, we are working on reducing them. We're not going to reduce the quality, I promise you. And if we find that the quality is being reduced, we'll push the time out again. So I just said all that to calm some of your fears. And by the way, if you are of that tribe that says, yeah, we want 50-minute messages, God bless you. You're my peoples. (laughs) (laughs) But we're going to try to do the same thing within a 35 or so minute span. Okay. Uh, We're also going to be adding a number of cool things this year. We're we're going to be having uh, what we used to call the 5C class We're now calling it Discover FCF. We're going to be having that monthly instead of just once or twice a year. We're going to be doing baptisms about four times a year quarterly instead of just twice a year. Be less people baptized but more occasions to get together. We're going to be scattering in there. We don't know exactly when yet. Some worship nights. Uh, We're going to be launching some groups that are growth groups, but they'll revolve around the the message series that we're in. And So we've got all all kind of new things that that are coming for this new year that we're very excited about. They will be changes that we hope you guys will love. Okay, so we're starting in a new series today, and the new series is called Little Big Things. And the, the premise, there's two real premises in this entire series, and the first is this. What if, what if there are some things that you and I have been considering little things? Uh, unimportant things, inconsequential things, things so mundane, things so easily done by anyone that when we look at them, we feel like, you know, God must have something else that he wants me to be involved in. He, he, He couldn't really care about me doing this little thing. It's just too insignificant. Premise number one. What if God, what we think is insignificant and little, what if God, in fact, believes that it's really big? Remember the thing Jesus said, kind of odd, Matthew 10, 42, he said, you know, anybody that gives a follower of mine even a cup of cold water, they will not lose their, can somebody fill it in? Reward. They will not lose their reward. It seems like a little thing, a cup of cold water, but Jesus counted it as a big thing. Premise number two that we'll cover in this series. What if, what if the truth is, the reality, the inescapable reality, that unless you and I seize, see first and then seize those little things, the things we're considering insignificant, inconsequential, maybe below us, Unless we actually seize them, do them, what if it will be impossible for us to experience what we might recognize as 
bigger, more dramatic things. In other words, what if doing the little thing is a necessary incremental developmental step that has to occur before we can ever get to what we might recognize as the big thing? And should we ignore the little thing, we will never, we'll never realize that divinely given destiny or potential. That's the premise of this series called Little Big Things. Now, we're going to start today. We're going to go back in time nearly 2,900 years. We're going to go back to the Old Testament. And if you don't mind turning those Bibles and near you on the chairs to page 407, you will be in the book of 2 Kings. And I'll give you a little background as you're turning there. When you come to 2 Kings, uh, the nation of Israel has gone through some turbulent times. Uh, they started out under unified leadership. There were, there were 12 tribes, just like we have 50 states, we might call. Israel consisted of 12 states. And they were unified under their first king, Saul, for about 40 years, a little over that. They were unified under their second king, David, for 40 years. They were unified under their third king, Solomon. But then, because of Solomon's exorbitant taxation, the people rebelled. And a civil war ensued, and there was a split. And so 10 of the states, if you want to call them states, the northern tribe that are often called Israel or Samaria in the rest of the Old Testament, they separated, they started their own religious system, completely false, completely unacceptable to God. And the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, where the temple in Jerusalem was, they stayed in themselves. Give you an idea of what kind of numbers we're talking about. These 10 tribes, the 10 northern tribes, would have been about 4 million people. And the two southern tribes would have been probably near a million people. So we're dealing today in this portion of Scripture with these northern tribes, this, this rebellious group of people. By the way, the, these ten tribes ultimately were swept away by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And they become known as the lost tribes of Israel. They, they never return. We don't know what happened to them. How many have ever heard of the lost tribes of Israel? That's where that comes from. So 945 B.C., there's this split when we come into today's portion of Scripture, it's about 868 B.C. It's about 77 years since the split. There's about 146 more years to go before Assyria overwhelms them. So at this time when there's such decadence in the ten tribes, they're not following God at all. God is reaching out to them as hard as he can. He's trying in his love to chase them down. And he raises up two very unique prophets uh, now, their names are, are a bit of a catch because it sounds like the same person, but it's not. The first person, the first prophet, his name is Elijah. Will you just kind of say that with me one time? The second guy, and Elijah, his ministry lasts for 28 years. The second guy that they raise up at the simultaneous time is called Elisha. <laughs> so you've got Elijah and Elijah. Shah. Elisha, his ministry lasts for 70 years. And, and so these are very significant individuals that God is giving his word to them and presenting it through them to the 10 northern tribes that are moving backwards away from God, bringing great uh, unnecessary hurt to themselves. And God is still in his love reaching out to them. So that kind of gives you the context. And Elisha... The second of the two, because Elijah had been taken alive to heaven back in chapter 2 of 2 Kings, Elisha is the center character in our, in our story today. So let's go now to chapter 4 of 2 Kings, and we'll start in verse 8, 
And we'll kind of go through 8 through 20, and then we'll pick up a couple of verses, and I'll lead you as we go. Here we go. One day, Elisha traveled to Shunem. Shunem is about 15 miles from where Elisha and the school of prophets lived. They, they lived in Mount Carmel. Shunem was about 15 miles from there. That, that'll be significant. You'll see in a minute. One day, Elisha traveled to Shunem where a prominent woman lived. She insisted that he stop for a what? Okay, kind of mark that off. Hey, man, you hungry? I see you're traveling. You want something to eat? Nothing more than that. Small. So whenever he was passing through, this was a journey he made regularly, he would stop in there for a meal. She said to her husband, look, I'm sure that the man who regularly passes through here is a very special what? Prophet. She recognized him. She's a spiritually minded woman. She's one of the remnant. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah the prophet was so discouraged at one point, he tells God, he says, God, I'm the last man left in the whole northern kingdom that's loyal to you because Ahab was killing off all of God's people. And God tells Elijah, he says, no, Elijah, in fact, there are 7,000 out of 4 million, mind you, only 7,000 that were standing loyal to God. This woman was one of those people who was staying loyal to God not because of the circumstances, but in spite of the circumstances. Okay, let's, let's go back to her text. So she says to her husband, look, I, I'm sure the man who regularly passed through here is a very special prophet. She had no doubt been to worship services over at Mount Carmel and recognized him. Verse 10, let's make a small private upper room and furnish it with a bed, table, chair, and lamp. And when he visits us, he can stay there. Not a huge thing. She's just being extremely hospitable. Verse 11, one day Elisha came for a visit. He went into the upper room and he rested. He told his servant Gehazi, ask the Shunammite woman to come here. So he did so, and she came to him. Elisha said to Gehazi, tell her, look, you have treated us with great respect. What can I do for you? Can I put in a good word for you with the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I'm what? What does she say? I'm quite secure. She's saying, hey, I I didn't do this for a favor. I I appreciate you want to do something for me, Elisha, but I'm good. I'm good. God's been good to me. I'm I'm fine. I'm content is what she's saying. Keep that in mind. Verse 14. So he asked Gehazi, what can I do for her? Gehazi replied, she has no son and her husband is old. Elisha told him, ask her to come here. So he did so, and she came and she stood in the doorway. He said, about this time next year, you will be holding a what? A son. Look at her reaction. She said, no, no, my master, oh prophet, do do not lie to your servant. Get the picture. Husband's old. She's probably, you know, somewhat close in age. And evidently, there was a time, you get the feel, she probably, like most women in Israel, wanted children, wanted a son, couldn't have children, evidently, and she had just come to accept it. She was content, securing God. She had just come to accept it. But now the prophet is saying, oh, oh, but, you know, there's a son that you can have. And she's saying, no, 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 don't. I'm good with this. Don't. Don't get me wanting something that I know I can't have. I've already come to terms with this. That's all in between the lines there. Look at his rather blunt response, verse 17. Excuse me. Um, 
or, or what happens, I should say, in verse 17. The woman did conceive, and at the specified time the next year, she gave birth to a son just as Elisha had told her. No, she was not looking for the son, so this is a, a su- supreme blessing, surprise blessing brought into her life. Verse 18, look what happens. The boy grew, and one day he went out to see his father who was with the harvest workers. He said to his father, my head, my head. His father told a servant, carry him to his mother. So he picked him up and took him to his mother. He sat on her lap until noon, and then what? He died. So this this blessing that she was not looking for, but she received, I'm sure, with joy, now is, is swiftly taken from her. So what we see next happening is this. She tells her husband, look, uh, I, need, I need a donkey, I need a servant, and, and I just need to take care of something. And she takes off as fast as she can to make the long journey. It's about a five- or six-hour walk. Who knows how long it took her with donkey. She's going to Mount Carmel to get face-to-face with Elisha. So she's on this journey. Look at verse 27. So she reaches Mount Carmel. When she had reached the prophet on the mountain... She grabbed hold of his feet. Gehazi came near to push her away, but the prophet said, Leave her alone, for she is very upset. The Lord has kept the matter hidden from me. He didn't tell me about it. She said, Did I ask my master for a son? Didn't I say, Don't mislead me? So she's saying, You know, I didn't ask for this child, but now the child is dead, and it's breaking my heart. And so Elisha is deeply moved. And he takes off to head back to Shunem, making this 15-mile journey again to go to be with this dead child. Let's pick up reading in verse 32. When Elisha arrived at the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. He went in by himself and he closed the door. Then he did what? Prayed to the Lord. Now, What happens next, and I'll just kind of explain to you, it's kind of odd. He prays. He knows this is beyond any human ability. This is a dead child. And then Elisha stretches himself on the child. It's kind of a weird thing, uncomfortable to read. Puts his hand on the child's hand, puts his face on the child's face, puts his eyes on the child's eyes. And what it is, though, it's a picture. You see, the prophet of God was a picture of God's means to bring his word to humanity in those days. So it's a picture of this dead child being draped, immersed, covered in the word of God. Elsewhere in Scripture says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It has life. It has the seed of God in it. It's a picture that even though some are dead spiritually, mentally, emotionally, when they are immersed in the Word of God, they can be brought back to life. And I bet you've known some people who have had what looked to be a destroyed life brought back into a vibrant life as God's Word immersed them, surrounded them, started taking root in their hearts. So he prays, and the child is restored. Look at verse 36. It says, Elisha called to Gehazi and said, Get the Shunammite woman. So he did so, and she came to him, and he said to her, Take your son. She came in and fell at his feet and bowed down. Then she picked up her son, her son, and she left. So We have this story, this rather short, unusual story, and the question that we should be asking is, why was this recorded there and then? 
In other words, we, we should be asking God, well, why is this there in your word? It's kind of an obscure, strange story. You know, here, here's this woman. She recognizes a prophet. She obviously has value, you know, for God's word. So she, she says, hey, you want a meal? Want another meal? I tell you what, how about, how about if you travel back and forth here regularly? How about if we build you a room? Use the rest here when you want. And then the strange occurrence with the child that's brought forth supernaturally and then dies tragically and then is resurrected once again. And then the story just stops. We never, <laughs> we never know this lady's name. I'll get back to that. I think there's a good reason for that, why we don't. So why was this recorded there? And then why? Why is it there? Well, the New Testament gives us some answers to this. In the New Testament book of Romans, Paul writing to Christ followers living in the city of Rome, he says, whatever was written beforehand, this is Old Testament, written beforehand, whatever was written beforehand is meant to do what? Instruct us, but instruct us in what way? How to live. So this story, God preserved this particular story because he wants to instruct us right now in some way on how to live. But the story is pretty simple. The lady just does a very little thing. She offers a guy that she recognizes to be a carrier of the word of God, a servant of God. She offers a meal, and then she offers a room to rest. That, 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 was, that was it. There was nothing very dramatic other than that. She did. We don't know much else about her. So what does this have to instruct us on how to live? Now, the first thing that occurs to me is that when I do a message like this and when I do a series like this that is about little big things and often the messages are going to revolve around little deeds that individuals do that turn out to be very big things. But what bothers me is the concern that some people, because our human minds tend to go in this direction, we tend to have a, a notion about God that, that ultimately God is always weighing our behavior. Whether we are going to be acceptable to God, in other words, or not acceptable to God, it's, it's going to come down to some sort of a scale type of thing. Humans tend to picture that, you know, you get before uh, the pearly gates, so to speak, and there's this scale, and God or Peter or somebody is looking at the scale, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, the gates fly open and you go in. Probably, you don't want to admit it, but probably some of you in here at some time or another have thought that way. As long as I'm not perfect, you know, and we all are imperfect, but as long as my good outweighs my bad, I think I'll be okay with God. Some of you have probably thought that way. Some of you might still think that way. There's other notions we have is that, well, I suppose God probably will just ultimately grade us on the curve. You know, I'm not Adolf Hitler. I'm not Charles Manson. I'm not, the G I'm not Jesus, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the worst person in the world, so the gates will probably swing open to me too because grading on the curve, I'll be okay. Then there's a third category of thought that tends to, to be popular amongst human beings, and it's this notion that, when you get to the pearly gates, for want of a better term, that's the way it's usually 
you know, presented, there's going to be some kind of a test, some kind of a quiz, you know, some kind of a question that's going to be given to you, you know. So, like, you're there, and Peter's there. Peter is always in these things. And so Peter is going to ask you a question. And you've got to have the right answer to, to, to get in, you know. So, you know, Peter says, why should I let you into the kingdom of God? And you're going to say something like, well, Peter, because, because I believe that Jesus died for me and rose again. And Peter says, welcome in. You knew the formula, you know. And yet the Bible doesn't teach that. Um, sometimes we, we, we think that the test is going to be a little different, you know. So, like, imagine you're standing in line at the pearly gates. Peter's there interviewing people, asking questions. You're the third one back. And so he asks, you're listening, you're trying to hear what they're saying. He asks the first person, he says, okay, here it is. This is whether you get in or you don't get in. Can you spell cat? And the person goes, oh, yeah, Peter, sure, man. C-A-T. You're in. And you're like, wow, that was remarkable. What is that all about? And then you listen for the second person's question. And Peter says, okay, we want you to listen carefully. Can you spell dog? And the person, D-O-G. Peter says, you're in. You're in. And then it's your turn. And you're, you're like, come on, Pete, come on. And Peter says, all right, listen carefully. Can you spell Czechoslovakia? <laughs> How many are not making it through the gates? Be honest. <laughs> You're not making it. <laughs> so we have these strange notions of earning, follow with me, of earning in some way um, our position in the family of God based on the curve, based on the scale, based on a test question or something like that. None of these things are correct. None of these things are supported in Scripture. So I, I want to I remove that now. So this series about little things that turn out to be big things, about little deeds, good deeds, I don't want you to be thinking that, oh, man, you know, i got to get at the good deeds. i got to make sure my good deeds are piled up high enough that I get into the kingdom of God. That has nothing to do with anything. Good deeds will not get anyone into the kingdom of God. We cannot earn our way into the kingdom of God. Listen to this verse or two that will make it so clear to you, if you'll accept it, that you will know that you know that you know for the rest of your life what it is that secures your eternal standing with God. Here we go. New Testament book. Paul writing to Christ followers living in the city of Ephesus. Ephesians 2.8, it says, Because of his kindness, you have been, past tense, you have been saved through, what do we have to do to be saved, Peter? Or, or, or Paul, through, what does it say? Christ. What do you have to do to be saved? Trust Christ. Miranda, you don't have to be baptized, trust Christ. Miranda, you don't have to do good deeds, trust Christ. Miranda, don't I have to, you know, give 10% of the church? You should, but you don't have to. <laughs> trust Christ. <laughs> How many of you know you're not making it to heaven based on that, man? <laughs> so we have to get this part down. This series is not about good deeds earning our way into a standing with God. We get a standing with God when we are reconciled to our creator Christ by merely returning to him in trust, okay? Listen to the affirmation of this in the book of Hebrews. And without, what does it say? Trusting, it is impossible, impossible to be well-pleasing to God. So we get our standing by putting our trust in Christ, but the trust is dynamic. It's, it's, it's a reconciling relational trust. What do you mean, Randy? I mean, like, okay, I could show you documentation to show you that I was born in Washington, D.C. at a certain time, certain place, you know, show you, and you would believe those facts about me. 
But then if I said, give me all the money in your bank account, that would determine whether or not you trust me, right? Isn't there a difference between believing facts about me and trusting in me, right? Trusting in Christ brings us into that eternal relationship with God that enables him to save us, develop us, so that we become who we were meant to become and do what we were meant to do. So let me go on. James talks about the nature of this trust or faith. What good does it do, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith, trust, same Greek word, pistis, it means trust, faith, reliance, confidence. What good does it do, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith, trust, but does not, does not prove it with what? Actions. This kind of faith, this kind of trust cannot what? Can't save him. Can it? Faith or trust by itself, if it does not prove itself with actions, is what? It's dead. It's dead. So when we're talking about faith, we are not talking about assent to some kind of a theological formula. You see, believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, that's assent to a theological truth. That doesn't mean that you trust in him. The evidence that you and I trust in Jesus is I will be found following him. That's the action. The action is, is I'm going to go now to God's word because I trust him. I want to know what he says about life. I want to live the way he designed me to live. I'm going to study it. I'm going to research it. And I'm going to put it into practice in my life. Not because I'm afraid. Not because I want to make sure that I go to heaven and escape hell or anything like that. I'm doing it because I trust him. He's won my trust. Faith is dynamic. It produces actions. It causes me to follow. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. That's John 10, 27, 28. You see the dynamic proof of faith is action. Okay, so this series is not about doing good deeds to earn your way into a standing with God. We get a standing with God only by trusting in him. So let me give you three important points. Trust in God motivates goodness in us. This lady already trusted in God. She was one of the 7,000 of the remnant that had been faithful to God out of 4 million. She was one. She already trusted in God. Because she trusted in God, she was interested in the word of God. Therefore, she recognized the prophet of God and wanted to help the prophet of God or help the ministry of the word of God. It was, it was her trust in God that motivated her good deed. Our trust in God is meant to motivate us to do little big things. Number two, God wants us to release his goodness through us. When I do the little good deed, when the woman gave the prophet the meal, built the prophet the room to rest in, God was able to channel his goodness to the prophet through the woman. God wants to channel his goodness, his goodwill to other human beings through you and through me. And he limits himself for the most part to you and me. So the little things we do are really big things because they're channeling the kindness, the love, the compassion, the help, the hope that God wants humans to have. Number three, God's goodness has unexpected power to extend how far? Way beyond us. Think of the story of this woman. She starts out just doing a little favor. Here, you want a meal? Have a meal with me. Hey, I'm going to build your room. Have a dad. When you're tired, you stay with me. And it goes from there to her having a son that she could never have. But then she loses the son. But then she regains the son. 
And then the story spreads all over in Israel. Four million people, most of them far, far, far away from God. But they hear, you know what, this must be true, that there is a real God. No one can raise the dead. And, and that lady's son was raised back to the dead. And then it gets put in the Bible. And so now, for 2,900 years approximately, this lady's story, this unnamed lady's story, this unnamed lady who did a little thing has been influencing and changing people's lives. And, he, and she's going to do it today. I, I know it in my heart. Someone here today will be moved by the Spirit of God using the story of this woman, and you will start to retune your vision to see opportunities for little things, little good things that you and I get opportunity for every day. And you will start to change your life and change the world around you because that's how real change that extends way beyond us happens. So how can it matter here and now? I mean, we, we looked at why was it recorded there and then, but, but how can it matter to me and you here and now? Well, 2 Timothy 3 just kind of affirms some things we said before. All Scripture, all Scripture, Old Testament, this story, this unnamed lady, all Scripture, it's inspired by God, and it's useful for teaching the faith and correcting error for resetting direction of a man's life. And I'll bet you there's some people in this room that you've thought at some point this year, my life just needs to be reset in a different direction. I'm just not, I'm just not in a good place. I'm not on a good path. Some, some of you, that might be the whole message. The Spirit of God is just telling you, he's been trying to tell you, you need to redirect to entirely redirect your life. Scripture calls us to that. Resetting the direction of a man's life and training him in good living. It goes on. These scriptures or the scriptures are the comprehensive equipment of the man of God or the woman of God and fit him or her fully for all branches of his work. So this story is scripture. It's it's here to equip us to give us a redirection in our lives. And here's the practical application. Paul, running in Christ followers, living in the city of Galatia, he, he says, so, so we must not grow weary in doing what? Sometimes we feel like it's unappreciated. It doesn't have a return. We, we just get tired of doing good. But we must not. We must not grow weary in doing good. For in due time we will reap if, if we do what? Do not give up. Some of you, are, you're, you're ready to give up on somebody or some situation. You've been pouring a lot of yourself, a lot of good in it. But you're about ready to give up. And God's saying, don't give up. You just need to keep on. You say, Randy, you don't understand. I, I'm getting nothing but pushback. I'm getting nothing but ungratefulness. I'm getting nothing but punishment. And God's saying, don't give up. Harvest is still to come. So then, whenever we have in what? Opportunity. opportunity. Whenever, whenever we have an opportunity, let us what? Do good. How many of you would agree with me? I, I, I've never, you know, tracked this specifically, but I suspect that in any given day, there's probably five to ten opportunities to do something good in the average life. How many would agree with that? I'll, I'll bet you that every day I'll probably get five to ten opportunities to do good. Having said that, I can tell you something about me. 
I do not always recognize them the way that I should, nor do I follow through with them. In other words, I miss opportunities daily, and I know that. I might hit some, but I don't hit them all. And I need to improve on that. I need, I need my eyes to become more tuned. So the Spirit of God is here telling me that the reason this matters now to me is because he's saying, I want to help you understand these little things, Randy, they're not little things. They can become really big things if you'll just see them and if you'll just seize them. These little things could be very big for someone else. Let us do good to all people, and especially to those who belong to the family of faith. This lady did that. She recognized that this guy was a prophet, a servant of God, and she wanted to do all the good to him she can, she could. And so what turned out to be seemingly small, she never expected to be remembered. She never expected to be rewarded. She certainly never expected to be having her story told in a group like this nearly 3,000 years later, chosen by the Spirit of God as a key teaching to influence and redirect the course of our lives. So how can it matter here and now when you and I decide I'm going to start becoming aware of the opportunities of little things, things I can do. They're so easy to do. They just seem inconsequential. But, but Randy, I know God's got this big thing for me to do. I, I keep waiting. I, I mean, it's been, it's been 15 years now, and I'm still waiting. I know he's got something for me to do, but I, I haven't found it yet. And you won't find it because until you do this thing that's right here, this little thing that you might feel is below you, it's not, it's not big enough, it's not spiritual enough, until you do that little thing, you will never, ever get to anything else that might appear to you or I bigger. You'll never get to it. You'll never get to it. Had she not offered the meal, had she not built the room, there would have been no sun. Had there been no sun, there would have been no crisis. Had there been no crisis, there would have been no miracle and expansion of her trusting God, seeing the child raised back. There would be no story then, no story now. All these things are contingent upon seizing the opportunities. One more scripture. Titus chapter 2, the apostle Paul writing to Titus, he says, Our great God and Savior. Who? Who is our great God and Savior? Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully human. He gave himself for us. Why? Why did he give himself for us? To set us free from what? Every sin. Every sin. Wait, wait a minute, Randy. I thought Jesus died for me to pay the penalty for my sins. That says he died for me. He gave himself for me to free me from every sin. That sounds like, Randy, that sin is a, is a danger to me now and that Jesus wants me to break free from sin because sin is a danger. It's hurting me. Yes, 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 yes. He gave himself to motivate us to build our trust in himself so that he could set us free from every sin and to cleanse us so that, why do you want to free us from sin? Why do you want to cleanse us? So that we can be his special people who are enthusiastic about what? Doing good things. Just little things. Just everyday things. Just stuff that we would walk by that we would think is inconsequential. Everyday little things, good things. Not to earn our way in heaven, but simply to become channels of God's goodness in a dark, dark world where there is indeed a blackout so that the light of God can shine 
in the little dark places. Listen, you know, you know that sometimes just a small word or two with somebody can change the mood that they are in. They, they might have been in the darkest, most discouraged mood. They might have been contemplating things that they would never even admit to somebody. And a pleasant conversation can turn that around. And that seems pretty inconsequential. But it's not. It's not. I want to recast this lady's story to you very quickly in eight steps. There's a reason for this. Here we go. It started with a meal, a little thing. Then a room, still a little thing. Then a blessed surprise, a son that she never expected. But then a tragedy that she would have never wanted, the loss of the son. Then a miracle, the restoration of the son. Then the story spreads over Israel. There's a real God in Israel. He raises people from the dead. Then the story becomes scripture. And now millions of people have been influenced by it. And it's waiting to have current impact right now, today. So... Eight steps. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight steps. Little, little steps. Little block. What if the big impact that God wants to bring in and through your life is waiting for you to seize the little thing that you have, not being insulting, but you've honestly overlooked it because you felt it was too insignificant, too ordinary, too small. And yet it's the key. It opens the door to your divine destiny. Little things. Could it be that there's something that God's been trying to get our attention to take hold of that seems small, but in fact it's big. And it's the pathway to things so big and to impact so beyond ourselves that we can't even begin to imagine it. Will you let the Spirit of God encourage you, sensitize your vision for the little things, and tell ourselves they're not, they're not little things. Any good that we can do is not little. We're channeling the very life of God when we do good things for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Lord, when you look down in a room like this, the potential your eyes must see. Open our eyes Stir our hearts that we will see these opportunities that you give to us each and every day. That we will see them, that we will seize them. And that these little things will become great things that will echo into eternity. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.